Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. What can a wildly successful strength and fitness coach who has helped tens of thousands of people lose fat bring to a podcast all about a love and reverence for food? A lot of common ground, it turns out. Starting with a story about eating shakshuka during a hike in the Negev Desert, Jordan shares about the approach to food, life, and family in the home of his heart, Israel, as well as the home of his origin in Boston. He tells us how the experiences and challenges in both places led him to so much success in his current calling and so much focus and clarity in what he wants next in life. Finally, we discuss how American culture forces a conflict between loving food on the one hand and being healthy on the other. And Jordan helps us understand how to reconcile and resolve that conflict, how we can love food, keep our bodies healthy, and most importantly, forge bonds and relationships while doing both. Before we start, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Next week, sisters Helen and Billy introduce us to their courageous parents who immigrated from Greece to Canada and built a life together out of nothing but a beautifully sacrificial love, hard work, good humor, and humble, delicious, nourishing food. The following week, Jessica tells us how she had just weeks to make a decision to leave Venezuela forever. She tells us about her new life in Holland, her memories of Venezuela, and the aripos, which bind it all together. So make sure you subscribe right now. And having done that, welcome to Jordan Syed. Hey, this is this is crazy for me because I feel like I know you. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah, so um, I don't know if Kat told you. I think this podcast is probably different than some of the others that you've been on. Has she told you anything about this, what I do? No, she literally tells me nothing about podcasts. <laughs> I always like it to be a surprise. Okay, well, let me tell you what I do. I actually cover food from absolutely every angle except health and nutrition. So every guest that comes on here actually gives me a recipe in advance. Um, I didn't ask you for one because I know how busy you are, but I bet you can guess which one I chose for you. <laughs> can you guess? Uh, shakshuka? Of course. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Of course. So what I do is I actually make the recipe and I photograph it. I'm a food photographer and I share it with my followers. And then I use that as a starting point to discuss everything about um, why this dish is special to people. And what that does is it goes into their story, their heritage, their culture. And I really wanted to hear from you first, apart from health and fitness, but also because my guests who come on here, they love food. They love to eat it. They love the taste of it. They love to cook it. They love it because of what it represents to them. I would say that more than they love food, my guests actually have a reverence for food, my guests and my listeners. But I don't think that that has to be in conflict with health and nutrition and goals and things like that. And I want to talk to you a little bit about your perspective on that, because I think there's always a little bit of that love-hate relationship with food. 
and it's in different proportions for everyone, but it's something we have to talk about even as we kind of, like I said, revere food on this podcast. So yeah, that sounds great. I'll talk about anything. That sounds wonderful. This is going to be a blast. Thank you for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So yeah, let's talk about first shakshuka. We'll just ease on in with that. So um, I just watched, was what was it like 2009 Jordan Syed? Oh man, you watched that video? <laughs> <laughs> that, I think that was like 2011. I loved it. I love, let me not overwhelm you with my kitchen here. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? You were always relatable. And I think it was great to see also just in terms of, you know, we all start somewhere and we build up, right? Yeah, that was, that was one of my earliest YouTube videos. It's a lot of coaches, they, they ask me like, how did I get good on camera? And I'll be like, go watch that video. Like you'll see it's very different. <laughs> I, I like having those early, early videos up so people can go back and see, you know, the, all the work that goes into getting better. Right. That's it. You just start. So tell me, can you first just describe the dish? Yeah. I mean, I think your audience is probably like you were saying, your audience is, is much more knowledgeable and reverent <laughs> around food. I, if I was going to describe shakshuka to an American who's very fitness and body focused, mm. I, my description of shakshuka would be something to the effect of it's like pizza without the crust. And, and mm. I would sort of just say that initially mainly because my main goal is to get people to really eat very healthy, nutritious foods. And if I say that, all of a sudden they're going to be like, okay, I want to eat that. So from there, then I'll go more into, it's a tomato-based dish. It's it's a lot of tomatoes. It's the base of it. So I'm trying to remember the dish. There's a, a chipino. It's like a chipino mm. base almost. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little bit different, but that tomato base. And then you can, they're like onions and garlic and a lot of spices. Zatar, I really like putting in it. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can put really anything you want in it. Traditionally, I was always taught to have it with eggs uh, mm -hmm. and a little bit of greens on top, some spinach or something on top to garnish it off. But and you can alter it however you want. But that's that's how I enjoy it. That is so interesting. I assume that the eggs were a critical component of it. You know, I think if we're talking about it from a traditional perspective, it is. It absolutely is. If we're looking at it from a Middle Eastern dish, I think the eggs are an integral aspect of it. Okay. I've always being in the fitness industry, you will come across many people who are like, I'm not going to eat eggs. So I'm like, cool, sure. Don't just don't put eggs in it then and put something else in it. Put sure. know, salmon, whatever you want. But from a traditional dish, I think you're right. It is eggs. So let's talk about that. Is this dish for you connected to your heritage? Yes, absolutely. I never actually had it growing up. It's a traditionally Middle Eastern dish. So I know they have it all over the Middle East and Israel and Jordan and, and all these places. The first time I went to Israel, we went on a, a hiking trip through the Negev, mm -hmm. uh, through basically the desert. And there was many amazing aspects of it. First time going to Israel as a Jewish person, it was a very transformative and wonderful experience. And we were in the Negev and they brought out all these like portable cooking devices and a huge, huge, huge pot, like a massive pot that they just like brought a cauldron. out. <laughs> yeah, like a cauldron. Exactly. Wow. And you could tell it had been used for years and years. Like mm. it was tattered and old and mm. there were like scrapes on the bottom of it. And they had, so many tomatoes, like hundreds and hundreds of tomatoes, because there were a bunch wow. of us, so tons of tomatoes. We cut them all up in a group, 
threw them in the pot and we just started to let it stew. And immediately you could just smell it and see the steam coming up. And before you'd even tasted it, just from the tomatoes, you're like, this is going to be good. Mm. And then they started throwing all these spices in it. And it was a wonderful, wonderful dish that we had as a community, as a group. And uh, it it was very inexpensive, just like right. like pennies on the dollar, just so, mm-hmm. so inexpensive and just delicious. And it was one of those things we hadn't eaten in a while because we were hiking and it was filling and satiating and hearty and delicious. And ever mm-hmm. since then, it's had a huge place in my heart. Yes. What a wonderful picture you painted for us. Thank you. I want to know. <laughs> Who carried the cauldron up the mountain? <laughs> it's <laughs> a I guess- great question. I wish I knew. I would imagine it was one of the, the tour guides, but it must have been because it definitely wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And I said the mountain, but actually the Negev is a desert, correct? Correct. Yes, it's a okay. desert. Okay. And I'm imagining the tomatoes were incredibly fresh and flavorful. Oh, my God. That's one of my favorite parts about Israel is all of the fruits and vegetables are picked early that morning and then they're shipped out all over the, cause the country is the size of New Jersey. So yeah. they're picked that morning and shipped all over the country and whatever you get at the grocery store that day was picked hours ago. So everything That's is just amazing. so fresh. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And I've had guests come on and say that it's, um, remarkable the number of microclimates within Israel itself. So you get a huge array of fruits and vegetables. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, what I'd love to do is um, I want to come back to your time in Israel, but I would like to go back a little further. And so I'm going to put out some assumptions and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. So I'm guessing that your interest in and your passion for Jewish history and your Jewish heritage did not originate in Israel. It originated earlier in your life and maybe even with your family history. Am I on or off track there? You're you're very on track. Okay. It, it's it's interesting. So I mean, I was born Jewish, brought up Jewish, raised Jewish, went to Hebrew school and I had an interesting relationship with religion. I never really considered myself religious, but mm-hmm. I definitely considered myself culturally Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um my mother was raised relatively religious. My father was not. And there was a lot of debate over that in the house. And there was a lot of tension around the holidays, but I always loved the holidays and being in mm-hmm. synagogue and being with my my friends around the holidays. It was it was a wonderful community to be a part of. And I think probably the one of the best ways for me to describe this is during one of the major holidays during Passover, mm-hmm. uh, every year, one of the lines that will say is next year in Jerusalem. And and, mm. and any time you you stand up to pray in synagogue, you always face Jerusalem. You always face the Western Wall. Always. Mm. So my whole life, mm. whenever I've stood up, it was always to to face the Western Wall. And then during Passover, they say next year hopefully we'll be doing this in Jerusalem. Mm. And so from the time I was a kid, it was just putting Israel on a pedestal and like it has to be a place that you go to. My mom would always talk about always how she wished she could go and wish she could shoot mm. and just everything. So mm. once I finally was there, it was a, a very powerful moving experience. It almost like you didn't feel like it was real. You almost felt like it was like something Harry Potter, right? Mm. It's like you just hear about it, you read about it, you see you see pictures of people in the Dead Sea floating as if like it's nothing. <laughs> and you're like there's no way this place even exists. But then mm. you land the plane lands, you're there and you can't believe it. And um, mm. 
I think there was almost like a tangible aspect to my soul when I was in Israel that mm. finally was filled. Like there was a hole mm. that was filled just by going there and finally being immersed in that culture and society. Wow. Did you feel in some ways as if you were home? Oh, absolutely. That is 100% my home with, without question. So what about your experience growing up prepared you or groomed you for Israel to be your home? Do you think that's something you just carried inside you? I want to say almost biologically, you definitely mentioned that you would stand up and you felt that stirring in your heart, like pointing towards Jerusalem, like it was literally tugging you there. Do you think there were other things about the celebrations or your conversations with your mom? It's a really good question. I really think the main thing that makes me feel at home in Israel is the people and the culture mm -hmm. much more than the religious aspect. It's okay. as far as I'm aware, 70 to 75% of Israel is secular. They're not even religious. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of tension between the very religious and the not religious yeah. people there. But um, I grew up in a family. My mom and I have a wonderful relationship. Mm -hmm. My my father was not the greatest. Uh, okay. He was absent a lot. Not really the, the sweetest guy to put it lightly. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, when I went to Israel, it's interesting when you're in America, especially uh, in New York, I live in New York, I grew up in Boston. A lot of times people are head down, mind your own business, keep interactions short. Don't really, don't really interact with too many people. And if you're going to interact, just do your job, get it done, say goodbye. That's it. Mm. In Israel, you meet random people on the street and they'll invite you over for dinner. Mm. It's like literally when I was 16 and I went for the first time, I met a group of kids on the basketball court and they invited one of them invited me over to his family's house for dinner. Mm. And literally that is now like my family. They gave me a bedroom in their home. I was the best man at their daughter's wedding. I talked to them every single day. And I, when I lived in Israel for years, like that's who I was with for a large portion of the time. And I met so their cool. son on the basketball court. And I remember one time I went when I was 16 for 10 days, I moved there for a year when I was 18. Okay. And I remember one day I went to this, just like a regular shop. Like you go to a store that was owned by this one guy, wanted to get like deodorant or something. And it was like 2 PM. It was two in the afternoon and I was walking in and he was closing the shop. He was like locking it up. And I was like, Whoa, where are you going? It's 2 PM. He was like, it's a beautiful day. I want to take my kids to the beach. And I was mm. like, how can I argue with that? That's amazing. Mm. It was just something that I, you don't see a lot of, especially in American culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, and definitely not in the way that I was brought up. And mm. I think seeing such a family-oriented culture and society in which they place family and friendship and kindness and positivity above business and above money and above the grind and the hustle, it was it spoke to me and like the soul heart of me. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's really where I feel so much connection to it is that when I go there, I really feel like I'm part of a greater good. Okay. Okay. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I, I'd love to go back a little bit and hear some more about your mom, just because I she's she's actually a little bit of a hero of mine, to be honest <laughs> with you. So I have four I have four sons, and uh, they they come from very different backgrounds. So not all of my kids are biological, and your stories about your mom and her tenacity and the way that she fought for you. There was a lot of things you didn't know that she was doing behind the scenes. Mm. So. My mom is a very, very, very strong woman. She was in incredibly intelligent. She was a lawyer. She stopped working to be with my brother and I okay. growing up 
by choice. She's just like, you know, I don't want to miss these years. And we started to have some money issues as I got older. She tried to go back to work. and But once she stopped working as a lawyer for seven, eight, ten years, yeah. it was very difficult for her to get yeah. back into law. They basically generally want fresh students out of law school who are willing to take a very low pay. You know, as a kid, I don't think you really understand any of it. I don't think you really yeah. understand the importance or necessity of money. I don't think you understand the power of it. I didn't really understand like, okay, well, she has a job she would like, but she's doing this job in order to feed the family. So she would do that. And I remember, I mean, I didn't know this at the time, but there were times when she would drop my brother and I off at school and say that she was going to work when in reality she was going to to the public library so that she could do job hunting or and it wasn't until years and years and years later that she told me that that happened. Uh, she would never let her own struggles, whether it was with my father or with her work, she would mm. do her best to make sure it didn't permeate my brother and my life, which I actually think did a, a significant toll on her throughout the years. Mm. I think not being able to talk about it, at least with us, was a, a big issue. She always put my brother and I first. She Her whole life all she wanted to do was go to Israel. And she made sure both my brother and I went before she did. And it was probably the, the greatest gift I was ever able to give was to bring her to Israel mm. on a trip. That was like the the thing I'm, like, I'm most proud of. So mm, that's wonderful. And I, I, I feel a little emotional because <laughs> I can tell you <laughs> as a mother, I think that your, uh, yes, your success, but also your generosity of spirit and your appreciation of her what more could any mother want? I know she feels repaid multiple times, you know, for what she sacrificed for you. So I'm glad that you guys have each other. Thank you. Mm. You've also talked about the fact that you you struggled with school and she was very, well, some people say tough love. That's, <laughs> she really walked that line, it seems, just about as perfectly as a mother can. Yeah, she did a tremendous job with that. I was I was in special education growing up. I was I really had a very hard time with school from from as young as I can possibly remember. From as young as I can remember school becoming challenging. I think one of my earliest memories about it was when we started doing the times tables. Mm. We had these like times table sheets and I vividly remember being stuck on the fours or the fives or the sixes and everyone else had finished yeah. all of the sheets mm -hmm. in the entire class. And I was just like, I, I can't do this. I don't know why I can't do this. And it was devastating. It was devastating. Listen, everyone gets teased. I, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I, I wasn't teased very much. I didn't get bullied. I, I'm very good socially. I have very little to complain about. But that was a, a huge insecurity of mine sure. for a huge part of my life. And yeah. she did a, a really great job of even though I struggled with it, she never, ever gave me an inch to where like, it's okay to quit yeah. ever. She was very empathetic. She fought for me behind the scenes to get into special education classes and to get an IEP. Like she fought tooth and nail to make sure I got what I needed for an education that I didn't even know about at the time. But one-on-one -on -one with me, I remember coming home from school, crying. I'd have tutors who would, they'd sit with me and they'd try and teach me stuff. And I remember learning something in school or with a tutor 
and then let's say the tutor would leave and then my mom yeah. would be like, okay, so now like do these equations again with me. And yeah. they're simple equations. And I was like, I have no idea. Like I can't yeah. remember. And it, it turned out that a lot of it was a memory issue. I have like a, some type of a short-term memory issue. Mm-hmm. Everyone else in my family is unbelievably intelligent, college professors, scientists, lawyers, doctors. I was not like that at all, which made it super difficult for me. But then I was the more athletic one. So I, mm. I was sort of blessed, which is very odd. My entire family is very overweight. They, they don't do sports. They don't pay attention to nutrition. To this day, my family still says, you know, it's not too late to go back to school because I'm like a personal trainer. Wow. Uh, yeah. So it's, well, <laughs> it was, yeah, let's not undersell it. <laughs> You've changed <laughs> uh, hundreds of thousands of lives. So <laughs> yeah, That's it's funny it, to me. I think it's, it's, it's also, I think it's part of, um, how they were raised and how they were brought up and their families. So it's almost like her not letting me quit has also helped me like when her or my uncle will say like, you know, it's not too late to go back to school. Um, what they taught me in terms of not quitting allows me to also push that out of, out of sight. In the end, it was character development is what she taught you. And you're applying character to what you're exceptionally gifted at learning math was not what you were exceptionally gifted at. At all. I am so bad at math. It's not Mm -hmm. even funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just thinking back to my experience, like one of the worst things she could have done is say, no, it's not harder. It's like when, when you're angry and you, maybe your spouse says, ah, don't be so angry. It's like, okay, well now I'm going to lose my mind. (laughs) It's like, don't tell me to calm down. Like, that's not how you get me to calm down. You have to listen and empathize. So if I'm struggling and losing my mind and she was like, no, it's not, it's not harder for you. I would have, I would have avoided it. Absolutely. But because she was so straightforward, like, listen, you're going to have a hard time with this because this stuff is harder for you, but that just means you're going to have to work harder. That was a very different pattern that was instilled. It was like, cool, so I'm going to do it. It's just, it's going to take more time and more work. And being able to take pride in that harder work, I think, was a wonderful gift that she yeah. was able to give me. It's like, yeah. take, don't take pride in something that comes easy to you. Take pride in something that you suck right. at, but you worked your ass off for it. Right, right, yeah. So what I'd love to do is kind of tie all of these threads together now, your mother and food and your heritage, and just ask you. So obviously, I have a lot of guests on here whose mothers, or actually particularly their grandmothers, kind of really spoke love to them through food. It was really a love language. And would you say that's something that your mom did? Or it sounds like she was speaking love by going out and earning the food. Yeah, I mean... She she did everything. My mom mm. did did everything. She mm-hmm. she would go to my baseball games. She'd go to my mm. wrestling matches. She'd go to my soccer games. I'll never forget this. This was something you know you take for granted until like you see what other people have. I would wake up every morning, and there would be a table full of food. Incredible. The, in in it would be a freshly cooked omelet. And there'd be fresh fruit cut. And then I would come back from uh, from wrestling and there would be like a, a fresh strawberry smoothie. It was amazing. And I loved it. But I didn't understand that not every kid was getting that. Yeah. Um, and then I'd either talk to my other friends or my other or go over their houses and we'd have a sleepover and we'd wake up and we'd go make a bowl of cereal. And it was mm-hmm. great. It was fun. It didn't change the experience. But it was like looking back like that – 
um, those omelets didn't make themselves. The cinnamon rolls didn't make themselves. She would get up an hour, hour and a half earlier before we did in order to make all that food, prepare it, set it out, make sure we're good. She would make sure that I had what I ha- had when I came back from sports practice, all that stuff. Like she, uh, and then she was going to parent teacher conferences, getting me into special education courses, taking me to tutors. Like she did everything. It was incredible. like, I don't know how she did it. I don't know either. That's incredible. <laughs> That's remarkable. And did she also, she or your Hebrew school, did they teach you at all about your heritage through food? Like we all know about Humantashen Purpurum, right? <laughs> I did an episode on that in March, you know, but would you say that food was in any way something that she or, or again, the other, the other people in your community used to connect you through your, to your heritage? Yeah, I think it was, it was both her and through Hebrew school. I mm-hmm. think, uh, like my father, he took zero part in terms of anything religious or Hebrew school, any of that. He wanted nothing to do with it. But my mom would take us to Hebrew school and, and they were, my Hebrew school is so good. They, to make challah bread and then we would make challah and then we would give it away at like charities and to people who were at a food bank or whatever it was. We'd make homentash and we would go to the Jewish community center and we'd have different types of foods there. So they did a wonderful, wonderful job with it. Um, my heritage is is Eastern European, so Russian, Hungarian, Polish, and so I mean, generally, my mom wasn't a huge fan of that food. <laughs> so, especially interesting. like interesting, interesting. Okay, it just bad memories from growing up, or she just didn't like it. Uh, mostly, I don't. I just don't think she liked it. I think. Yeah. A lot of like the white fish, like the pickled, mm-hmm. fish, like she didn't like that at all. I love it. Like I absolutely love that stuff. And it's one of a very, it's a very traditional breakfast in Israel. You have like Israeli salad with some white pickled white fish and onions. And I think it's delicious. I think most, especially people in America, they think it's disgusting, but I really enjoy it. My grandparents weren't around my, I didn't really get, I get, I got to meet a couple of them, but they died at a very young, when I was very young, but from more of like a a Russian Middle or Eastern European food, that was actually more of my father. He really liked that stuff. So he would have it around the house. Uh, But my mom she she's, she's not really into that food at all. She doesn't like anything spicy. It's so funny. I am obsessed with Indian food. I love yeah. it. It's like <laughs> if I could only eat Indian food, I would. I absolutely yeah. adore it. She yeah. eats it. So she she was very good from like a, a motherly, I would say more of like an American, but it wasn't very adventurous. I was very fortunate in that I just like trying different types of foods. So and I grew up in an area which I could have Korean food, I could have Indian food, I could have Hispanic food, I could have Middle Eastern food. And I would just, I was very fortunate that I went out and tried it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about the food in Israel. So I had a guest really early on, and she she really explained something to me, which is she said, Jewish flavors, I'm curious if you agree with this or not, having lived in Israel, but she said, really uh, Jewish flavors really represent almost the entire world because they have been displaced so many times. And then mm. what happened is they came back to Israel and brought all of those influences with them. So, you know, you can almost take almost any dish and you're going to find an influence from somewhere else in the world in that dish. And then because so much is available in Israel and because the agriculture is so advanced, you know, 
Israel can support making all of these dishes. So would you say that there were flavors that are techniques that felt particularly, um, I don't want to say Jewish, but like Israel, <laughs> Israeli food to you? Or do you feel like the food really was very cosmopolitan and and global when you were in Israel? I think it's a great question, and I should probably preface by saying I am not a food expert, so I have to say that because <laughs> um, what I, I might sound like a complete idiot when I say no, that. and that's okay because really, like it, I said, it's really just about guests sharing about their experiences. What I've found in Israel is it it really, and I guess you could say the same thing about the United States. It depends where in Israel you are. Mm. Um, I think globally, from an Israel perspective, like just from the entire nation, one thing I found is. A common thread among Israelis is they, if it's not fresh, they won't eat it. Actually, Starbucks tried and failed in Israel miserably. Uh, really? Starbucks did not work, and I think it was for two main reasons. Number one is way too many options of coffee. Israelis are very like, listen, just give me, give me the coffee, and that's it. Just give me the black coffee. That's all I need. Like maybe a little cream, but that's it. Like they don't like all of these different options. Um, and the second thing is they don't like packaged processed food. And it's, I think it's because it's so easy to get fresh food that the idea of having something wrapped up in plastic is like, what is this? Uh, and mm -hmm. Starbucks, they had all of their, like their sandwiches and everything that was processed in one facility and then shipped out all over the country. And it failed miserably because I don't think Israelis are like, why would I do that when I could just go across the street to a bakery and get bread that was freshly made in the last hour, um, or like fresh, uh, vegetables and fruits that were picked earlier today. So that is for sure. One thing I found just across the entire nation, but in terms of different foods, I've, I've found that, for example, I tend to consider myself more of a minimalist. Like I don't need a lot to be happy at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts about shakshuka, which is mm -hmm. like, you get a bunch of just readily available ingredients, you toss them in, you let it cook and you eat it. And it doesn't matter if you're hiking, doesn't matter where you are. It's just like, it's very simple. And I found that the places that I tend to relate to and enjoy the most are the places that tend to value more of the, the company you keep and the, the freshness and keeping the wholesomeness of the food yeah. rather than necessarily making it something fancy or abstract. And I think that, Generally, Israelis do that. Obviously, I think if you go more towards Tel Aviv, which I would say is more similar to New York, then you'll get more fancy stuff, more high end, more bougie. But generally, Israelis are more minimalist. Just give me the food. We're going to cook it and we're all going to sit around the table and eat it as a family or friends, enjoy some great wine. And, and that's going to be it. And, and it's uh it's it's much more about the company you keep and the simplicity of what you're making and the freshness of it rather than trying to make it something fancy. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. It's like the time the time is better spent on the people. It sounds like you're saying. Yes, and it doesn't take away from the food. I love the food, but I mean, yeah. I don't think it it. And again, I'm not a food expert from a culinary perspective. I don't think it's outrageously difficult to make falafel. Yeah. Um, um, so I think a lot of it is about speed, about accessibility, about freshness, as opposed to the, what, what like five star rating it's going to have. Yeah. Interesting. Did you find that, uh, from a cultural standpoint, um, 
well, so I'll, I'll tip my hand a little bit. Um, so my husband is actually Palestinian. Mm. Um, his dad was a Palestinian immigrant. And there is um, there's a great deal of pride placed on the food. And by the time and the effort put in, would you say, and that's true in many, many, many cultures. In fact, one thing I think that I've come to realize, and part of what makes your mom so remarkable is that a lot of times, again, it's the women who are putting this, um, Mm -hmm. almost their identity is found in their cooking because they have so few ways to express that, you know, that is their expression of excellence is in their cooking. And that's why I think it's so remarkable that your mom, who was so successful and was doing so much as a lawyer and as a mother and also put so much time and effort into food. Um, But did you find that in Israel, that was like an expression of people's identity? Or again, was it, hey, let's get something fresh. Let's get something delicious. Because usually those two are one in the same. And let's, let's sit down and eat. And there wasn't so much identity tied to it. That's a wonderful question. And I think it might be different family to family. But mm-hmm. in my experience, from from the experience that I had, I would say that generally speaking, well, I, I'd say this. I think a lot of times women find a huge part of an identity in, in their cooking because it's their cooking that brings the family together. Mm, right? That's a good it's point, like, Jordan. It's, that's a really good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When they cook and everyone sits down, it's because of them. And if it mm. wasn't for them taking the time to cook the meal and get everything ready, then realistically, people probably the family wouldn't sit down and have a, a communal dinner. Mm. And I think there's a lot of pride and 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 time and and energy that goes into that, and they should take pride in that. From my experience, I've always found that at any point that they can get the whole family involved, it's a win. Mm. So. Um, <laughs> Yes, I think generally the women are the ones cooking for any number of reasons, but um, from the family that I was a part of and the people that I interacted with, the whole family took part in the meal, Um, Took either whether it was cutting, whether it was cleaning, whether it was uh, setting the table, the the whole family took part in the process of it, Mm -hmm. which to me was one of the best parts. It wasn't just one person's job. It was the family's job. Um, and no one was just going to sit on the couch and wait until dinner was ready, right. which is how unfortunately like I was brought up. And um, I think I'm very lucky that I could, I think a lot of people are brought up in a certain way and then they act that way through their life because they think that's normal. Like they see mm-hmm. what they're brought up with and then that's how they are. I said I was what I was brought up with and I was like, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. And, and when I saw in Israel, this family who, they got everyone took part. Every every like someone went shopping, someone else was preparing, other people were setting the table. Everyone was doing something and they made it a family mission to get the family together to eat and enjoy this food. I think that then the family can take pride in an identity with it as opposed to only one of them. That is a phenomenal insight that you have. I love that. And I and I love that experience too. That sounds so wonderful. Mm. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that as I get older and, and hopefully get married and have kids, that is something that I want to, mm-hmm. I want to carry on that tradition of like getting the whole family involved. This isn't one person's job. It's not one person's responsibility. Let's all take a role in it. Yeah. And, and then that time becomes fun. It becomes family. Yeah. It becomes like getting to know you. You have more conversations, you have more interactions as opposed to one person in the living room, one person in their bedroom, one person in the basement, one person cooking. It's like, let's all be together. 
Well, exactly, exactly. And you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. So a parallel is one thing that I always, always prioritized with my kids when they were young was sitting on the sofa and reading to them because I knew that Mm. if they associated, I believed that if they associated reading with warmth, with love, with me, that they would be much more likely to carry positive feelings into reading. They'd be more likely to be lifelong readers. I love that. Well, and I think it's the same with cooking, right? That again, so many people that come on this podcast, why do they love these dishes? Well, because they made them with their mother or their grandmother or their father or their grandfather. And the more people you can involve in that, the more that you're equipping to love something that we all have to do. I mean, one way or another, we all have to eat. (laughs) And the more we can prepare it ourselves, the healthier it is. So I love that model of getting everyone involved and associating it with the warm feelings of being together. Not that there's not sometimes some bickering that goes along with it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Of course. And oh, man, especially, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure your husband has stories. I mean, they're they're so similar. They're, They're so similar. It's like, at least in Israel, a regular conversation sounds like everyone's screaming at each other. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) You have hit the nail on the head for sure, for sure. So, well, I feel like this is the perfect segue into really your calling. Um, Because although you say you don't know a lot about food, your calling, which I think I can, I, I think I can refer it to that, right? I don't think this is a job for you. I think it's a calling, right? Sure. Yeah, I agree. So can well first of all can you just can you tell people what it is you do and you do it very well Jordan I mean, <laughs> Thank that, you. that I don't need to say that I think the the stats and the number of people um, prove that uh, I would say I, I'm basically a strength training and nutrition coach and a little bit more specifically as I try and help people develop a healthier relationship with food and exercise and health, physical health, mental health, uh, and get them more involved with exercise and nutrition and living a healthier life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say you do a lot with mind transformation also. I think you're right. I think it's a huge, for me, the way I've always seen it is as a coach is any physical progress, fat loss, strength gain, whatever, any physical progress made on a foundation of an unhealthy mental or emotional relationship is going to be short term. So if you lose fat with an unhealthy relationship with food, then you'll gain it back. So you first have to have a good, healthy, strong mental and emotional relationship with food and exercise in your body before you end up trying to lose weight or whatever it is. Because if you try and do it before that, it you'll event, you'll do something unsustainable and you'll yo-yo diet, you'll, you'll binge, whatever it is. So you have to start with the mental side first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's really the crux of how I want to bring this all together at the end. And But first, I am curious about, I feel like there's these like lost, again, like I said, I feel like I know you because I followed you on YouTube and um, I've listened to your podcasts, but I feel like there's kind of these lost years that I don't know about you. So you went to Israel, <laughs> you loved it, you felt like it's home. Then you kind of did these remarkable things with your own strength training, like you deadlifted four, is it four times your body yes. weight? Okay. Yeah. And then you somehow started working with Gary V. So yeah. what happened here? Tell, tell me about, tell me about this. 
So, I mean, I, I got into fitness because yeah. of wrestling. Uh, I started wrestling when I was eight and, and I fell in love with it. I started wrestling because my mom, my, my older brother was fit right into the family, very intelligent, very book smart, uh, and also not really much of a healthy relationship with food or exercise. And he was getting picked on a lot. Uh, and he was not very athletic and he didn't really know how to defend himself. And my mom was like, all right, I want you two to wrestle. And my sole knowledge of wrestling at the time was WWE style wrestling. <laughs> so I remember asking, we were in the living room. She told us we were going to start wrestling. And I was like, you want me to hit someone with a chair? I was just going to say, did you grab a folding chair? <laughs> and and she was like, and she, I always say that she gets mad when I say this because she didn't actually say idiot. But I always say as a story, she's like, no, you idiot. Um and so I fell in love with it. And my brother, not so much. He, he didn't like it. it. It's sort of like I didn't fall in love with math because I sucked yeah. at math. So you, yeah. you like what you're good at. Yep. I loved wrestling. I enjoyed it. I excelled at it. I did very well. I made varsity as a freshman. I beat a junior out for the varsity spot. And I had to cut a lot of weight in order to compete on varsity. I had to cut from 112 pounds to 103 pounds every week. Uh, and... That was when I was like, okay, I'm, I'm a good wrestler, but I'm a freshman. I'm 14 years old. I'm going up against juniors and seniors. So I'm good technically. I'm good endurance wise, but my strength doesn't match up to the people I'm wrestling. So I applied for an internship at a gym near me. And uh, very fortunately, they took me under their wing. And even more fortunately, they were very science based. And um, they introduced me to great strength training, great nutrition at 14 years old. And I worked there my entire high school from 14 through graduation. And that's when I knew I wanted to be a coach. Uh, so there. that's a yeah. key part I've always missed. Okay. That does, that does help me understand. Okay. Yeah. My, my first client was a 68 year old guy named Fred. Who, uh, <laughs> swear to God, he 68 year old and his sole goal. This was, this was very important for me in my growth as a coach. I was 14 years old and his goal was to be able to pick up his grandson without hurting his shoulder. Oh, and okay. I was 14 and I wanted to look good naked and get stronger for wrestling. That yeah. was it. And yeah. it's very hard to have perspective in life in general. Never mind. at 14. I thought everyone just wanted to look good naked. That's why I thought people worked out. Uh, so to have a client at 14 years old who didn't care about his body fat percentage, he did not care how much he deadlifted. He didn't care about walking on the beach. He just wanted to learn how to pick up his grandson without hurting his rotator cuff. It was very, it was, that's when I fell in love with coaching is because I wanted to help Fred with his goals, not help Fred get my goals. Mm. And I think that's important part of coaching that a lot of people miss is you see people say, Oh, I love going to the gym. I would love coaching it. No, it's not about you. It's about your client. And, um, so then from there I, I took a year off after high school and I went to Israel and I volunteered with Holocaust survivors and fell in love with Israel. And then I, I almost joined the Israeli defense forces, but my mom said she would kill me if I did. So I <laughs> came back and I promised her I would go to school. That was before I went to Israel for the year. She was like, you have to promise me you're going to go to college. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, all right, fine. So I came back, went to college. And when I was at college, I was competitively powerlifting and I started my website. I, I didn't know it was going to be a business. I had no idea it was going to be a business. I just started my website and I started writing articles about what I was doing, my strength training, my nutrition. And at the same time, I started to do well competitively in powerlifting. So people would follow me and ask me questions and they'd ask me if I could write their programs and I would do it for free because I didn't know I should charge them. Yeah. Um, 
And so by the time I graduated college, I had an online business that was like going pretty well. I remember I graduated college and my mom was like, all right, so you got to get a job. And I was like, I think I'm all right. Wow. And, and she was like, what do you mean? Think you're all? like, that was wow. one of the worst things I could have said to my mom. <laughs> like, cause she had no idea what I was doing online. She had no idea that I had started to make money for, and she didn't know that was possible. I didn't know it was possible. And I was like, no, I'm like coaching people online. She was like, what are you talking about? And that was it. And I, I ended up moving back to Israel cause my business was all online. And a, a while later, Gary Vaynerchuk's team reached out to me and they had found my content online and they were like, you know, we wanted if you, we were wondering if you want to coach Gary and I thought it was a joke. Mm. Uh, and then I, I flew from Tel Aviv to New York city, coached Gary for an hour and flew back to Tel Aviv. And uh, about uh, six weeks later, they offered me the job and I flew from Tel Aviv to New York and I'd coached Gary seven days a week for three years straight. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Well, uh, one thing I was thinking to go way, way back into the conversation, I'm curious, um, you told that story about the guy who locked up his shop at two o'clock on a weekday and said, you know what, I want to go be with my kids. And that had a massive influence on you. And then you also have talked about Gary V telling you, as hard as you're working, work twice as hard. (laughs) And I'm wondering... How you reconcile those those two things? Yeah, I, it's. I think I'm in a very fortunate situation because mm-hmm. I started my business when I was 21 years old, yeah. and I had no kids, no girlfriend, no wife, no nothing. I was just in my dorm room at a college that I hated, surrounded by people that I despised and Mm -hmm. surrounded by teachers that I thought were idiots. And I was very egotistical and like an angsty young man at that time. Uh, But it drove me to work very hard to build my business. And basically when when I was with Gary, I sort of looked at it like detention. Um, When I was in college, I hated it. And I almost dropped out several times. And my, one of my family friends is a, is a psychologist. And he said this to me, I was like, he's like, you know, you're not going to drop out. And, and the reason he knew that is because I already didn't really have a relationship with my father. And my mom made me promise that I would go to college because it meant a lot to her. And I didn't want to drop out because if I did, that would create real friction with my mom. And I didn't want to sacrifice that. So he's like, you know, you're not going to drop out. So you might as well make the most of your time here. Just, just think about your, your intention. You're not leaving. You can't get out of it. So just do the best you can with what you have. And that's when I started my business and all that. And I'm very thankful that I had that mindset. And when I started with Gary, I used the same mindset. I was like, this is three years. This is a three year detention. So I'm going to go as hard as I can for these Mm. three years. And I know I'm not going to get married during this time. I know hopefully I'm not going to have a kid during this time. So I might as well just go all in. And now it's, it's, uh, I coached Gary for three years. I've had the last year away from him and I've seen a shift in the amount of work that I'm doing. I'm spending a little bit less time on social media, more time with my girlfriend and more time for myself. Uh, and I think as I get older, I, I'll go through phases of, you know, hustling like Gary Vee and then other phases of just going to Israel and taking a month and not doing anything. Yeah. Um, but I think my goal, my long-term goal is to be, and I've said this for a long time. I remember saying this, I, it, it stuck with me that my father 
he didn't know what position I played in sports. He didn't know what my coach's names were. He didn't know what my teacher's names were. And I've always wanted to be uh, the coach of my kids' sports mm. teams. So I've always wanted to have, <clears throat> have a job that allowed me to go to all my kids' games, coach them, be there for them, go to the parent-teacher meetings, have dinner with them. I didn't want my work to prevent me from being able to be with my kids, sort of like my mom. like She stopped working or she did whatever she had to do in order to be there. And that's always what I've wanted to do. So I think I'm, I'm getting to a point in my career in life in which m- more money will solve more problems until it doesn't. And then it will yeah. create more problems. Yes. So and, wise. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm getting to that point in my life in which more money is going to create a lot more issues mm-hmm. for me. And it's, I think it's, it's a blessing and, and who knows, it could turn on a dime and I could lose everything. But I, my mm-hmm. goal right now is not to create more wealth. It's to, uh, create a, a better relationship with myself and my girlfriend and my family and, and to hopefully allow that to carry me through rather than always just chasing more money in the bank for whatever reason. Yeah. The new wealth is flexibility. That's exactly right. That's a yeah. good point. Yeah. And I really, really appreciate that because I feel like the two are actually completely reconciled. You saw that man lock his shop and you said, that's my goal. That's what I'm going for. And you knew that your time, you know, working twice as hard as you were, you know, what, what he advised you to do, you knew that that time was your investment towards meeting that goal. That's yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That Mm. one moment changed my life forever. That is for sure. Mm, that is so, well, I have to tell you again, maybe a little off the record. I, I think one reason I'm kind of drawn to your videos and I appreciate you, one is the, the science, but also you actually remind me a lot, a lot of my husband who is just the most wonderful husband and father anyone could have. And he worked, you know, he put himself through school. He put his brother through school. He worked night shifts to do that. Never stopped smiling the whole time never told someone no. If they needed to borrow his truck, he'd say, sure, borrow the truck. And what time should I be there to help you move? Like, and I he, love that. yeah. And he, he actually owns a business. He owns a software company and he started it to be flexible. He started it so he could be there for us, you know, and he's always worked very hard. That's just part of, he can't not work hard. He, he really can't. <laughs> and, and I suspect there's probably some of that for you. He does. He doesn't know how, and that's okay, but he's always, always, made sure no matter what else, even if he had to work till midnight and be up at six, he made sure that he'd had five to eight to stop and do dinner and put the kids to bed. And so, um, I really commend you because I think you have thought ahead and I think that it will pay off. And I think that your investment will, well, your wisdom of looking ahead and building this foundation, honestly, your investment is actually going to pay off for generations. Like you've literally already started loving your kids and your grandkids. And that's, you really should be commended for that, Jordan. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, your husband sounds like a wonderful, wonderful man. I'd love to meet you both one day. <laughs> he's, he's the best. Yeah, that would be that would be that would be an honor. So, well, what I'd like to do is kind of sum this up and and bring it together because I I think that what we've kind of agreed on here, even just hearing your stories about the shakshuka and what your mom did for you and those things, is that food actually, I believe, and I think my listeners all believe, they meet a lot of primal needs. That's why this beginning of this COVID thing was so scary, why people were going berserk, because there's this primal fear 
of running out of food and starving. Mm. But it really does meet other needs. It does express that love. You know, your mom spoke that love to you. It does bind a family together. Like that was such an amazing point that you made about, you know, a woman bringing of her family together over food. You know, it definitely is a carrier of culture. That's something we've seen over and over and over. And we didn't touch on this very much, but there's really not a celebration without food. Let's put it this way. I don't know that you would have remembered the hike in the same way if food wasn't there on the hike, right? Or if it was like I a granola bar, agree. right? <laughs> right? Not to mention, I don't want to go to a party that has no food. Right, right, <laughs> right. So, but of course, we all also, you know, want to be thin and fit. And actually, one thing we see over and over is that even in all these other countries where food is such a big deal, they're much thinner and fitter than here in the U.S. <laughs> That's but, exactly right. But how do you, and this is where your real area of expertise is, how do we reconcile this love and appreciation for food? with a desire to meet our goals, to eat in moderation, to be fit. Are those two, I think our society tells us that those things are out of step. I don't think our society makes it easy for us to reconcile those. Do you agree? And how do you reconcile those? What would your advice be to my listeners? You know, it's, uh, I'm not a food expert, but this, you're, this is where I, this is where I know what I'm talking about. And I will say <laughs> I've worked with, I worked with a lot of chefs and they're the food experts, right? They, they, I've worked with a lot of chefs, uh, high level, very, very world renowned chefs. Um, I'm working with one right now actually. And, um, you know, sort of to go backwards a little bit, I think the American culture specifically is a very all or nothing culture. <laughs> it's a very like binge culture either yeah. you're going to be it's like a binge restrict culture either you're all in or you're all out either you're eating or you're starving yourself either you're hustling as hard as you can or you're not working at all it's like where is the middle ground like mm. either either you want this person or you want them dead it's like what is going on there's more of a gray area that we have to find and we see this with food too where i think it's either I'm going to be able to eat that entire cake or I'm not having it at all. It's like, what in the hell is that? Where, where did that mindset come from? It's like, it's one of my favorite parts about traveling. And, and you, you mentioned it like other cultures. It's so funny. Like you look at like France, like they have no shortage of carbohydrates in their diet, yep. but they have a significantly healthier body weight and, and overall health than Americans. Um, you look at a lot of people talk about how rice is white rice is bad for you. I'm like, really? Cause I'm pretty sure the Japanese are among the healthiest and they have white rice every day. Just yep. if you look across their, their diet and their culture. Um, for me, it really comes down to, to two major things. Number one is understanding moderation, which like we, that's just a whole rabbit hole we can go down. But number two is also managing your expectations. This is, this is, I think, arguably the most important and it's one of the hardest to do because of social media and because of what we're being fed online. Um, you see men's health and women's health magazines with photoshopped and airbrushed pictures of people that are just completely and utterly unrealistic and legitimately fake. And they don't tell you that the model dieted for 16 weeks eating like a thousand calories. And also, by the way, they took anabolic steroids and also they were airbrushed and photoshopped to look this way. Mm. It's like, and then they show you like, well, how to eat pizza and look like this. It's like they didn't eat pizza when they were doing the cut for that photo shoot. And it also helps that they got photoshopped and all this and took anabolic steroids. 
you have to manage your expectations. And what that means is you have to have more of a realistic idea of what uh, a healthy body looks like. You know, shredded to bits and veins coming out of your abs is not it, it's not necessarily unhealthy, but that's not what most people are going to look like if they have a healthy relationship with food and exercise. They're mm. going to have a little bit of belly fat. Cellulite is normal. People have it. It's like not something to be ashamed of. You have to have realistic expectations of what your body will look like while you're still able to maintain moderation and live a healthy lifestyle. And I think the more people understand, listen, First and foremost, no one cares if you have a six pack. Nobody mm. cares at all. I promise you, telling you from personal experience. And number two is, <laughs> is, it's just like if having a six pack is the most important thing in your life. Number one, I think you have you have an issue that needs to be discussed. Number two is if having a six pack is more important than being able to enjoy some food in moderation with your friends and family. I think you have your priorities messed up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as I was listening to you talk about your experience eating with that family in Israel and the freshness, the value on freshness, sometimes I wonder, Jordan, honestly, if our problem in America is actually that we don't put enough reverence on food, that we eat it so mindlessly, that we stuff our faces with it so robotically. It's like we don't care enough to take that time to chop a vegetable with our family. I, I love that. Almost I, working against us. I think it's a wonderful point. And it's almost, you hear in the fitness industry all the time that, well, well food is just fuel. Food is just right. fuel. You only eat food to fuel your body. And I, I'm like, what a terrible life that is yeah. to only look at food as fuel. I'm like, food is so much more. Food is family. Food is culture. Food is language. Food is taste. Food is smell. Food is emotion. There's so much to food more than just yeah. fuel. And yeah. I think, what you said about food from the perspective of, hold on, there's this huge sign right <laughs> I'm outside. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's not your fault at all. It's This is New York City and there's mm. a fire firehouse right outside. Do you really? How do you sleep at night? You know, it's... it's you just get used to because, it? Because it usually does... This firehouse usually doesn't go off at night very much. But yeah, you also do think you get used to being in a chronic state of low level stress all the time. Oh, um, okay. That's interesting. Mm. But what were you were saying about how we don't put enough of a reverence on it, how we, we look at it as just fuel. I think that creates more harm than good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, one of the, one of the best parts about really appreciating food for it, not just being fuel is when you pay attention to it and you appreciate it, oftentimes the desire to be a glutton goes away, right? Mm. It's like when you look at food as this wonderful, wonderful, this this source of, of energy and happiness and vitality and life and and so much, when you look at it that you cherish it and you don't look yes. at it as something to, to gluttonize. You look at it as something to, you want to share it with others. Yes. You don't want to offer yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. It's like you almost, the joy is in, I just, I really feel like your experience in Israel has crystallized this for me, but the joy was doing it with others. Right. And I feel like that's what I hear over and over and over again. That's the joy of food. And when you take that part out, which is what you do when you constantly push this um, mantra of food as fuel, you take out the community. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I, it's, 
Mm. You get a great meal. You have a great meal, and you're like, oh my god, this is. You have to try this. You have. That's like the first thing that comes out of your mouth. You have yes. to try. It. Yes. It's like right. The first words. Like you, and right. it's so funny because in the fitness industry, I don't know how many people listening will understand this, but in the fitness industry, when people are meticulously tracking every calorie and only putting like the the fuel in their body, it's like there's a jokes in the fitness industry about it's like if you touch my food, I'm gonna be pissed. It's like that's not what food culture is supposed to be about. It's like when you're really enjoying your food, you want it to be a community, familial, friend group, like enjoy this together, enjoy it with me and we'll all have some, not, hey, I'm gonna save this for myself and binge on it alone and no one else can have any. You're so right. Mm. Well, that is all so helpful. I really do appreciate it. And I do wanna just tell you that you personally have actually helped me because I, um, and and this is even with me make like I said I make all these recipes I photograph them I'm very much surrounded by food all the time I cook for six people you know every day if but I really I have hypothyroidism and I really started to buy into this like well I just can't lose weight and I wasn't I was just fluffy you know and um, listening to you listening to you watching the Big Mac challenge I thought maybe I really am just making excuses and I actually thought about my mom who's like 65. No, she's like 66, basically weighs what she weighed when she weighed. And I thought, <laughs> what does my mom do that I don't do? And it does tie into this. I realized my mom never, ever snacks, but my mom never misses a meal, ever. Wow. Like food, I love that. She, she never misses a meal. And I decided the day after Christmas, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm never going to miss a meal, but I'm going to stop this mindless. Again, I'm going to actually revere my food more. Like it's worth sitting down and eating a meal. And I started doing that. I did track also, but see, it's easy to track when you're only eating three meals a day. And so far I'm down 12 pounds, which is. Wow. Congrats. It actually, well, it actually is a, a good bit um, because, you know, like I said, I'm fairly, I'm fairly fit and I've just kind of lost that fluffy look. I'd like to go a little more, but really it was my mom's example, but it was, I, I had, I had gone ahead and let myself believe it wasn't possible. So <laughs> I, I love that. I, I'm a huge fan of simplicity, as you know, yeah. and I, I might actually use that, um, the idea of, listen, stop, stop snacking and stop skipping meals. It's like those, those two lines, I think, I think I'm going to use that and I'll reference you. And <laughs> I think that's going to change a lot of lives. Don't snack. Don't skip meals because both of those things, they lead to a positive outcome. Right. And if you, if you start snacking, it'll be a negative outcome. And if you start skipping meals, it's going to be a negative outcome. Because if you do one, if you don't do one, then you'll start doing the other, right? So exactly. if you, you start snacking, then you're going to skip a meal. And once you skip a meal, you're going to keep snacking. It's, right. it's a cycle. That's a wonderful way to look it's at it. It's a terrible cycle. And what it does again, to go back to this is it separates you from people. You don't usually snack with people. Maybe you eat ice cream around the kitchen island at night, but you don't usually snack with people. You almost always eat meals with people. That's exactly right. And even if you're by yourself, I love your point about, you know, revering the meal more and, and, and yeah. cherishing it and appreciating it. It's like, listen, I'm not going to stand up and have this meal half-assed. I'm going to sit down and really right. enjoy this meal that I took the time to make, that people took the time to get these fresh vegetables. Yes. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to honor myself and honor this food and all the effort that went into making this meal by sitting down and enjoying it. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. So, okay. Well, Jordan, I, I'm really, I am actually in awe of your generosity with your time because I know how busy you are and for you to just get on and share all of this. And, um, I feel really, really, really blessed by the things that you've shared and I'm, I'm really grateful to you. So thank you very much. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I have to ask, did, did you make shakshuka yet? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Did you like it? Oh, I loved it. And actually, it's funny, going back to the pizza analogy, I didn't think about it like that, but my oldest actually can't eat cheese. So we don't eat a lot of pizza and he can't eat pizza, but he loved this dish. I actually made it from- Wow. And I'm like, you know what? This is perfect for him because this yeah. is kind of his replacement of pizza. So I kind of love that you that you said that. And now- That's great. I've actually never thought of putting some tomato sauce and some eggs- on a crust. But honestly, I mean, you're getting the same thing. You're getting a little bit of fat. You're getting a little bit of protein. You're getting that, that, uh, that richness, that flavor. Gosh, I could make him pizza this way. Um, and he's a distance runner. Yeah, really helped us out. So, um, for my listeners, tell them all the ways that they can find and follow you and you know what you can do for them. (laughs) Well, if they want, then they can, my own podcast, the Jordan Syatt mini podcast, Instagram, YouTube, if you want, you just Google my name, Jordan Syatt, S-Y-A-T-T, and you'll find me on literally every platform. Yep. 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 Awesome. Jordan, I just want to thank you really again for the bottom of my heart. Of course. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again to Jordan. You can find his contact information as well as his Shekshuka recipe with a lot of possible modifications for tastes and preferences, as well as adjusting the recipe down to individual servings or up for large families or gatherings. Head over to my website, thestoriedrecipe.com. While you're there, please make sure you sign up for my newsletter to receive monthly links to recipes, as well as all of my free food photography resources and printables for creating your own storied recipe cookbooks. As many of you know, my Instagram was permanently disabled a couple weeks ago. You can listen to the last episode titled The ISIS Flag Hack to hear more about that. And if you love a good food story, I'd appreciate a follow over at thestoriedrecipe.podcast while I work to rebuild my feed. Finally, most of all, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss weekly episodes just like it. And please leave a review. Every single one helps and means the world to me personally. Thanks and have a great week, my friends.